0: Tonight we're going to turn our attention to Genesis, so please turn with me if you would to uh, Genesis chapter 45 and verse 16. Genesis 45, uh, beginning at verse 16, we're going to read into uh, chapter 46. We're not going to read all of those verses. Um, I'll tell you where we're going to go here in just a few minutes. Uh, Genesis 45 and verse 16. So, let's listen together to God's holy word. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land." And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes." To his father, he sent as follows ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. For he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, "'It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die.'" So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, "'Jacob, Jacob,' and He said, "'Here I am.' Then He said, "'I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I Myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I also will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes.' Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt." And then in verses 8 through 25 is a list of all the family members. So we're going to just skip over that and pick up the last two verses, 26 and 27. The summary, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. Uh, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord will abide forever. Please pray with me. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, Grace URC, we've been making our way through the story of Joseph over the last uh, number of weeks and even months, and it is in, indeed an incredible story, an exciting story, a story about the providence of God, uh, which is to say the everywhere present power of God. Uh, which we have sung about tonight, which we have read about tonight in Romans chapter 8. And and I want to just give you a a brief um, summary of uh, how we got to where we are tonight. Uh, So what's been going on in this story? Well, back in chapter 37, uh, we're introduced to Joseph, who was 17 years old at the time, and he was uh, favored by his father, Jacob. He was given, as you'll recall, a coat of many colors, and uh, he also received a couple of dreams, visions, uh, where uh, he was told by God that uh, people would bow down to him. His own family would bow down to him, and so between his father's favoritism and the robe and also the dreams, his brothers didn't like him very much. And so, uh, it occurred on one day as he went to check on them far away in a field as they were tending to their sheep, uh, they took a look at him and said, let's destroy him, let's get rid of him. But sort of at the last minute, you may remember if you're familiar with the story, uh, they decided instead to uh, preserve his life but to sell him to a group of Midianites who were traveling by. Uh, They then take his robe and dip it in blood and go back to their dad and uh, come up with this cover-up story that their brother, his son, his favorite son, had been uh, attacked by a wild animal. And uh, so he's in Egypt, this uh, this brand-new, faraway place. Yet the Lord is with him. Everywhere um, he goes, the Lord is with Joseph, and uh, this doesn't mean it was easy for him. In fact, when he lived in uh, Potiphar's home, he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and that landed him in prison for not just a little while, but several years. And it was in prison uh, where he ended up interpreting a dream of Pharaoh himself, where he said, there will be seven years of plenty and seven years then of Uh, neglect, of famine, of need. And so he came up with his idea and shared it with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh liked the idea. During the seven plentiful years, he suggested uh, that they put grain away a little each year uh, so that at the end of that time during the famine, they would have plenty left over to provide for the Egyptians and even the surrounding nations who might come uh, to buy food and grain from him. Well, 20 years or so pass by during this time, between when Joseph is sold into slavery and now when he is essentially the prime minister of Egypt. And things back in Canaan uh, were not good. Uh, there was uh, a severe famine which led Jacob to send most of his sons to Egypt because he had heard that they had grain there. And so they go, and they meet with this powerful man, and they don't realize that it is Joseph himself. But Joseph… Doesn't reveal his identity at first. He has a series of tests for his little brothers or some big brothers. uh, And he's wondering if they had changed at all over these last 20 years. Had they grown at all, or were they the same cold blooded boys that had uh, sent him away and sold him to the Midianites while they enjoyed a lunch? Well, last, uh, uh, earlier in chapter 45 is when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers in this emotional scene where Joseph uh, lavishes them with love and forgiveness and grace. And uh, the scene includes these grown men weeping as they're reunited together in this most profound way which is what brings us here into the passage uh, before us this evening. But there are still a number of uh, questions that remain. What will become of this family? Will God's promise to Abraham all of those years before come to fruition, or would they not, on account of the famine on the one hand and the sinfulness of, of, of this family on the other? Would they be preserved? And not only that... How would Pharaoh treat them? How would Pharaoh deal with this family? Would he care about them at all? Because it's emphasized in the text earlier that while Joseph has been promoted, he's number two in the land. Number one in the land is Pharaoh himself. Would he care or would he uh, uh, kill these brothers who end up coming over here? And that's where we're uh, tonight as we consider uh, this evening, first of all, a friend's generosity as we go through the text together, a friend's generosity. Notice right away in verses 16 through 20, uh, Pharaoh's response to Joseph's family coming back to be reunited with him. We see this in verses 16 through 20. Pharaoh is pleased upon hearing the news. He he says to Joseph, "'Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan uh, and take your father and households and come back to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt.'" Uh, do this, he says to Joseph, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Now, now, what led the Pharaoh to uh, act towards this family with such kindness? Well, certainly uh, the Lord was at work. The Lord was working and moving His providence and His sovereign will to come to pass, but also, the reason Pharaoh was kind to the brothers was because of the relationship that he had with Joseph himself. It was on account of Joseph that Pharaoh lavished these gifts upon their bro- his brothers. Even the indebtedness that he owed to Joseph for being the one to come up with the plan to help preserve his nation. And so, he sends these wagons. One commentator says these wagons were the ancient equivalent of luxury SUVs with black-tinted windows. These were the best of the best. So, Pharaoh was not just giving them a little bit of provision. He was overwhelming them. He was lavishing them with good gifts, with kindness, with blessing. What a beautiful picture of our union With Christ, of being united to the Lord Jesus by faith. Not physical blessings, although God does give us all that we need in this life, to be sure, but spiritual blessings because we are united to Christ. If you are here tonight and you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Uh, Then God is delighted to lavish you and I with blessings, Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, every spiritual blessing, redemption and forgiveness and adoption, and justification, and sanctification, and glorification. And we could go on and on and on. The unsearchable riches of Christ have been given to us on account of our relationship to Christ. Just as these brothers of Joseph, though they didn't deserve it, receive these kind gifts from the Pharaoh because of their connection to Joseph, The question is, as we think about all of our spiritual blessings, these unsearchable riches, is are we enjoying them? Are we celebrating them? Are we digging deeper into the Scriptures to explore them further? Do they lead us to celebrate God's goodness in the gospel, these spiritual blessings which God is pleased to lavish upon us? In his book, The Gospel for Real Life, Jerry Bridges shares a story. Some years ago, our pastor, he writes, told an unusual story about a southern plantation owner who had left a $50,000 inheritance to a former slave who had served him faithfully all his life. That was quite a sum of money in those days, perhaps equivalent to half a million dollars today. The lawyer for that estate duly notified the old man of his inheritance and told him that the money had been deposited for him at the local bank. Weeks went by and the former slave never called for any of his inheritance. Finally, the banker called him in and told him again that he had $50,000 available to draw on at any time. The old man replied, "'Sir, do you think I can have fifty cents to buy a sack of cornmeal?' Not having handled money most of his life, this former slave had no comprehension of his wealth. As a result, he was asking for fifty cents when he could easily have had much, much more. And Bridges concludes, the story illustrates the plight of many Christians today. The Apostle Paul wrote of preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was not referring to financial wealth, but to the glorious truths of the gospel. To use the figures from the former slave story, Paul was saying that each of us has fifty thousand dollars available to us in the gospel, yet most of us are hoping we can squeeze out fifty cents worth. Why is this true? The answer is that we don't understand the riches of the gospel any more than the former slave understood the riches of fifty thousand dollars. Friends, we are so rich in the gospel of Christ. We who are poor, we who were in poverty, God has entered that poverty Himself in the person of Christ so that we in Him might be rich. What a picture here of of the spiritual blessings which God lavishes upon us, though we don't deserve any of them. The sons of Israel did so, verse 21, "...and Joseph gave them the wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes." Uh, But Moses records, "...to Benjamin he gives three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes." To his father he sent as follows a bunch of donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Now, why uh, is it that he says in verse 24, maybe you picked up on this as I read it earlier, why does it say, why did Joseph say to his brothers before they departed, do not quarrel on the way? Why would he say that here? Do not quarrel on the way. Could it be that He understood the temptation for them, which would have been this, to compare what they had received to their brother Benjamin? All of these good gifts, all of these provisions, but we didn't get what Benjamin got. And isn't that so often how Satan works in our lives, how he tempts us? Instead of us celebrating and meditating upon all that we do have, it's so easy to think about all the things we don't have in comparison to others. This was Israel's plight in the Old Covenant, in the wilderness. God had brought them and delivered them out of Egypt, and what do we find them doing soon thereafter? Complaining and grumbling. You know, it wasn't so bad in Egypt after all, God. At least You fed us there. Perhaps there's another reason Joseph warns his brothers against quarreling on the way back home. Perhaps he knew that uh, the evil would inevitably become known to their father up to this time. It had been a secret. They had never revealed to their dad what had truly happened 20 years earlier. Could it be that Joseph here is telling them, in a sense, don't rehash all of the details that occurred on your way back to telling it to, to dad? You could just hear them arguing with each other perhaps, you got us into this mess, or I tried to get us out of this, it wasn't my idea, I'm not going to be the one to tell him. Maybe, just maybe, we don't know for sure of course, but maybe Joseph was trying to say to the brothers, listen, I've forgiven you. I have forgiven you this transgression. What you meant for evil and it was evil, God has intended for good. And so, we find here in Genesis 45 a friend's generosity for the sake of his friend Joseph. The Pharaoh lavishes Joseph's family with good gifts. What a picture of God and the way that He takes care of us. Well, secondly, not only do we see this, but we find a father's joy, a father's joy. Uh, So, the boys return to Canaan to deliver this uh, shocking news. I wonder when uh, Jacob had given up hope. Maybe at first uh, he, he, he wondered, well, maybe, maybe he's still alive. Maybe, maybe this didn't happen. But I wonder at what point over those 20 years he had given up hope. They tell him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt, And how does Jacob respond to this news? And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. His heart became numb. That is, it became paralyzed because he didn't believe them, and and, and we can hardly blame him. But then uh, they persist, verse 27, but when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the text says the spirit of their father Jacob revived. It revived. It came to life. It's the same word used in Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones, where it says, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And so, as they're telling him all the… the, the words of Joseph, as they're showing him the tangible evidences of Joseph's kind gifts, his spirit revives. Does that remind you of anything? A couple of things. Think about the announcement, if you fast forward in your minds and in your Bibles to the empty tomb. No, it can't be. We just saw Him crucified. And yet, they go to the tomb to see for themselves. And then they, they meet Jesus, and Jesus gives them further proof. He talks to them. He eats with them. He shows them His wounds. He preaches the gospel to them. And suddenly, go, they go from uncertainty and doubt to absolute conviction. Indeed, Jesus is alive. It also reminds us of our spiritual new birth, which we call regeneration. That wonderful supernatural work of God whereby He works by His Holy Spirit and causes us to be born again. And perhaps at first we hear the gospel and we're numb to it. Maybe this is your experience, maybe your testimony. Maybe you came to church for a while and you heard the gospel preached and yet it didn't stir you, It, it didn't do anything within you. You thought, well, it's too good to be true, or I don't think I need to be saved, or God could never reach me. And then suddenly, through the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God Himself opens your blind eyes to see the wonders of the gospel for you. What a wonderful thing it is. The Spirit… Revives our spirit. This is spoken of in John chapter 3. The spirit goes where he wills. Jesus is teaching Nicodemus that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. I remember hearing a story a number of years ago uh, that was told by the Gideons of a, of a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, who was a professor who uh, studied the New Testament to be able to refute it. And so, he knew the New Testament inside and out, backwards and forwards. He knew the New Testament, uh, but one time he was on a, a, a trip Uh, to raise funds or something, and he found himself in a hotel room, and uh, wouldn't you know it, he pulls out the drawer and he takes out a Gideon Bible and he turns to John 3, and by the time he's done reading John 3, the man is on his knees giving his life to Jesus Christ. And how do you explain that? He had read John 3 maybe a hundred times before the Spirit of the living God revived him. I find verse 27 just absolutely wonderful. First, he didn't believe them. But when they persisted, when they told him all the words of Joseph and and showed him the, the wagons and the provisions, his Spirit revived It's a reminder to all of us that as we teach the gospel and as we evangelize those around us, we are the means God often uses, but it is the Holy Spirit who who, who brings about new birth. It's also a reminder to us as parents, isn't it? Those who are parents here tonight, our children we know uh, must be born again, but they uh, cannot do it, nor can we in our own strength. We are called like Joseph's brothers to tell them the good news. Uh, There's a wonderful passage in Deuteronomy 6, and many of you are familiar with it, uh, where it talks about, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, etc. But there's another place in chapter 6, verse 20. I love this. Verse 20 of Deuteronomy 6, when your Son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and his household before our eyes, and He brought us out from there. And so, when your son asks you in time, what does this all mean? When your son or daughter asks in time, what does my baptism mean? When our sons and daughters at some time, Lord willing, down the road asks us, what do these things mean? We are to tell them. We are to tell them as Joseph's brothers tell their father, but not only are we to teach the gospel to our kids, not only to, are we to evangelize with the gospel to our neighbors, but we are to also give them tangible uh, evidences, these wagons, the, the, these things that they could, uh, Jacob could see with his eyes. If there's a disconnect, loved ones, between what we say and, and, and how we live, this is a problem. Now, part of what we say and, and part of our testimony is that we're weak and we're broken, and, and it is a, a life of humility and a life of repentance because we're not perfect. We're far from it. But, but there needs to be a connection between what we say and, and how we live. What a reminder tonight. They told Him all the words of Joseph and when he saw all that they had been given from pharaoh the spirit of their father jacob revived in verse 28 look there with me if your bible's open and israel said it is enough joseph my my son is still alive i will go and see him before i die a father's joy well that leads us then finally into a father a family's journey a family's journey We've seen a friend's generosity, a father's joy, now a family's journey. So, Jacob then takes his whole family on this great journey, and uh, before he gets there, he stops at Beersheba, which is the southernmost tip of Canaan, uh, which would have been a big deal for him to leave uh, Canaan, to leave the promised land, verses 2 through 4 of chapter 46. God meets with him and ministers to him. God spoke to Israel in visions, and He said to him, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. See, brothers and sisters, God is so very faithful. Despite Jacob's fear, God strengthens and upholds his faith. Despite our fears... God strengthens and upholds our faith. He ministers to us. He speaks to us through His Word and by His Spirit. When we hear the gospel, when we read the Scriptures, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, God is there again and again telling us, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you and uphold you. I will strengthen you with my righteous right hand. For those going off to college for the first time, He's with you. He's faithful. He'll walk with you. He'll be your guide. He'll be your friend. And so we go in that confidence. We go by faith, not by sight. So, Jacob having met with God, God revealing himself to Jacob once again out of his kindness, then we read and Moses records this great caravan. He sets out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel, verse 5, carried Jacob their father, their little ones, their wives, and their wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also take their livestock, their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and come to Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. In fact, it, it, it ended up being 70 people in all, if you include the sons of Joseph and Joseph himself, who would then end up finally in Egypt. And if we would take time to to look at the particular names that are mentioned here in verses 8 through 25, uh, we would quickly see that this is undoubtedly a dysfunctional family. Be encouraged, your family is not the only dysfunctional family. Uh, Written all over it here is brokenness, is sinfulness. One commentator says, they were inept misfits like Reuben… Efficient swindlers like Jacob, and those with a history of sexual sin like Judah, but God was working in each of them. In God's providence, you may be, he says, from an inbred redneck family like Perez and Zerah, or one of the kids from a big city biracial marriage like Ephraim and Manasseh, end quote. And as we look at it, as we look at these names, as we look at this broken family who's walking by faith, who's on this journey to this faraway land, doesn't it remind you of us? Doesn't it remind us of the church? Brought together by God's mercy, banded together, not by biological tithes, not by political loyalties but by the gospel of God's saving grace, the good news for sinners to the undeserved. The church is made up of social misfits, those with broken pasts and presents, those from dysfunctional families, sinners, every single one of us, all called by God in Christ, walking by faith as pilgrims in a world that is not ultimately our home, welcomed and united as one family journeying on. So strange is the church, in fact, that it's unlike anything the world has ever seen. In fact, as Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 10, the church, when it's operating like this, the church, when we're united together in the gospel, makes the heavenly beings sort of sit up and ask questions like, now what explains that? There's nothing human, there's nothing earthly that explains fellowship in the gospel, where we get together and we commune and we fellowship, not because we have the same ethnicity, but because we're all united in the person of Jesus Himself by faith. What a wonderful promise this evening. A friend's generosity. For the sake of Joseph, He lavishes these gifts upon the brothers. How much more then, for the sake of Christ, did the Father lavish His gifts upon us, His undeserved people? A Father's joy after years and years and years of grief. He's told that His Son is still alive. At first He doesn't believe it, He's numb. But then as they continue to share the words of Joseph, and as he sees the the wagons in the distance, his spirit is revived. And he wants to go and see him. And so he takes his family, this caravan of travelers, which is a picture of the church, all rallying together, going to a heavenly home, whose foundation and builder is God Himself. May the Lord give us grace as we sing and think and meditate upon the faithfulness of our God, that He works all things according to His perfect will, come what may, good times and challenging times. He's preserving His people, and He's walking with us wherever He leads. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we delight in Your Son. We delight also in knowing that You are with us in all things that You hold us by the hand, that You're traveling with us, and we thank You for that good promise tonight. Father, truly we can say, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Keep us from the temptation to compare ourselves to others, Father. Help us to remember that all that Christ has won is ours. And so, we are those who have been taken from uh, poverty to riches because He who was rich became poor. And so, may we sing of Your faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.